Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on in the show, we'll have a look at the role developers play in creating Vancouver green spaces. But coming up first, how trade threats and tariffs are affecting world markets. Global stock markets were hit hard yesterday as President Trump threatened tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods. Now, tension seems to have eased somewhat today, but we have Sean Coakley, market analyst at Cambridge Global Payments, joining us with some more analysis. Thanks for coming on the program, Sean. You're welcome. How how large a number does Donald Trump have to threaten before eventually <laughs> China pays attention to him? They seem to be able to accommodate $200 billion like, oh, yeah, well. Rounding error for us. Yeah. It's actually really interesting that you mentioned that because it, when you look at the data, it's actually, it seems like there was some thought put into that 200 billion uh, number because that's basically the full extent of Chinese imports from the United States. So, in essence, what Trump is doing right now is using up all his ammunition in terms of this threat because outside of that, there's really not much more that they can stick import du- duties on uh, to China, whereas China has a lot more uh, room to respond in kind to the United States. Yeah, what sort of things are we potentially expecting from China? Because maybe they won't match the $200 billion, but they do have different avenues potentially. China can, depending on how much they want to ramp up, can make the United States life absolutely miserable. They can, uh, what's most likely to start is uh, that they will start interfering uh, in the operations of American-owned multinational corporations that operate in China. What often doesn't get recognized, particularly by the United States, is that while they may be running trade deficits with the rest of the world, they're corporate organizations have benefited enormously from trade. And uh, about 50% of the revenue that gets generated on the S&P 500 index, which is probably the golden benchmark for uh, U.S. large cap stocks, is generated overseas. And much of that is actually generated in China itself. So if the Chinese government decides to interfere with those operations or make life much more difficult for U.S. corporates, it's also going to have a negative impact on the donor class that ultimately subsidizes Trump's uh, political ambitions. Outside of that, uh, the Chinese also are the largest holders of uh, treasury bonds. And just just by the, the decision not to continue to hold those bonds in, in at the same level of, um, of um, I guess, that they're currently holding right now, uh, we can see it's significant interest rate pressure on, on uh, U.S. rates, and that'll directly affect not only the federal deficit, but also uh, the funding of U.S. corporates. It's, uh, it's a very dangerous game the president is playing. Everybody understands that. But do you see a way for him to get roughly what he needs and not damage global economies? It, um, it really depends on the way that he decides to, to address his current account deficit and what the response to, to the threats that he makes are. Right now, he is the one that is putting everybody else on the defensive. 
And if you look at the political sentiment in China, it's very likely that they will not allow uh, Donald Trump to to push them around. So no. they can return in in kind, and that's really the the threat that we face uh, is that this ramps up into even greater level of conflict. Really, when we look at it right now, these are just threats. They haven't been carried out yet, so it might just be part of a negotiating tactic. But if the Chinese and other governments decide to respond in kind, this can easily cascade into something much more severe. Yeah. we Even in Canada, I think we don't realize that we have a net outflow into China. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, so, you know, picking a fight with China would not be in Canada's interest in the least. Well, it's not really in anyone's interest. I mean, the looking at uh, current account deficits as a zero-sum game is really like an archaic way of looking at yeah. trade relationships. Uh, if we look at how uh, the economy, especially since the 1980s, has been structured, where the whole world is basically integrated with each other. So if there's any disruption to the trade relationships that directly affects supply chains and the knock-on effects are are enormous, even from relatively small tariffs, it affects everything down the line. Uh, Really, if we wanted to address our current account deficit in Canada and the United States, what that means for us is that consumers in Canada and the United States have to stop spending as much because generally what's what is driving the current account deficit is overconsumption on the on the, the part of consumers in Canada in the United States that ultimately gets fa- financed by foreign investors in Canada or our Canadian government bonds or in the United States direct investment into the United States US denominated assets or in US treasury bonds the end of the day, current account balances balance out with uh, financial flows that flow back into the country that has the negative current accounts or due to currency effects. So it's not necessarily uh, a zero-sum game at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to see what happens with these threats, which is how you put them, and that's totally true. I'm curious how the markets could react. They, we saw them react yesterday to what is a very significant and concerning threat. Are they preparing now for a worst case scenario? Are they more positive? Where are they at today? No, we're actually, we've seen a definite rebound in, uh, in global shares. So in Asian trading, we saw initially as Asian trading picked up the uh, continued loss, but the, the Asian market had more or less recovered the losses that we had seen. And then as we moved to Europe and North America, that same trend has prevailed. So markets are up today. They haven't recovered all of the gains that, or all of the losses rather that we saw yesterday. But overall, you can see that risk sentiment has improved in the markets because we've seen uh, a retracement in the U.S. dollar. It's uh, gone down. Uh, we've seen uh, bond yields in the United States also uh, deteriorate. And we've also seen uh, crude oil uh, move higher, which is all indication that uh, from a macro point of view that the market sentiment is more bullish than it was yesterday. Yeah. That being said, uh, the American economy appears to be largely on a kind of an autopilot at high gear. The, uh, the markets don't appear to take the trade war issues um, as seriously as maybe 
I don't know, maybe the, the observers do and the analysts do and the journalists, I guess, in some cases do. Um, are we living in altered realities here? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent. But you've actually pointed out what the, what financial markets actually are. They trade on sentiment and perception rather than fundamentals. If you're looking at like a 10-year time horizon, yes, markets reflect economic fundamentals. But in the short term of anything less than two years or even a little bit more than that, uh, markets and asset prices can tri- be completely out of whack from what the economic reality on the ground is. And that's really what we're seeing right now. In actuality, we've actually seen a deceleration in the growth in the hard economic data coming out of Canada and the United States. Well, the U.S. looks to be on track to post to at least 4% GDP growth for this quarter uh, uh, over last year's numbers and perhaps even this year. Uh, posting a, a number close to that level, it, it we've seen um, deterioration in actual hard economic data that actually presents information that's coming from the manufacturing sector, the service sector, that indicates that while sentiment is good and sentiment is what drives markets, the actual economic realities on the ground aren't as good as markets would dictate. Mm-hmm. Even before these recent trade issues, the Canadian markets did not have uh, good years. We were one of the worst performing markets, our Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, out of all developed countries. When you look at how this year is shaping up, Sean, how is the TSX doing compared to other markets around the world? Well, we've actually had a terrible last 10 years. If you look at uh, the TSX performance since the uh, global financial crisis, it's almost been flat. I think we've seen uh, 3% annual growth year, year you know, like cumulative uh, annual growth. Uh, over the 10-year time horizon when you would expect more like a 7 to 9 to 10% uh, long-term growth rate. So if you look at the components that make up the TSX, you can really see why that happened the pace. Historically, Canadian equities are very heavy towards mining and energy stocks as well as financials and mining and energy have been uh, terrible performers at least since 2014 and even a bit before that as well. So, yeah, well, so- we also had, we also had research in motion there that, uh, <laughs> that- <laughs> yes, but that makes up for that. We have lots of cannabis stocks that yeah, are basically yeah. driving the entire market right now. So right. there's, there's that. But if you, if you look at the economic fundamentals, it looks like the commodity complex is coming back. We really, if you look at oil, gas, mining, and energy, or energy and mining, they are the most cyclical industries that, that exist. So really, it looks like we're in um, the, the middle to latter stages of like an upswing in commodities, particularly in energy. And that should propel earnings for energy companies in in Canada. So it should make the relative performance of the TSX better than it was, say, in the last 10 years. But overall, if I was an investor, I'm always going to be picking the S&P 500 as the benchmark that I want to use rather than the TSX. And that's largely due to the fact that Canadian equities are only about 3% of uh, the global capital markets that are directed towards equities, whereas S&P 500 constitutes uh, 54% of uh, the market capitalization of uh, global equities. So that's where I'd be looking. Yeah, it, it, to translate it even from the investor over to the consumer now, uh, Sean, um, apart from 
smuggling shoes in every week from the United States, as Donald Trump suggests I do. Um, is there anything that you think consumers can do in this case to avert uh, being sideswiped by some of these global forces? Is this the time, for instance, to uh, tuck your tail in and not not go out and get that uh, get that mortgage? Uh, what what would you be advising consumers? Yeah, I would kind of follow like. Going down to the states to buy a shoes is fun, so I wouldn't recommend. I wouldn't say don't do that, especially if you're somehow able to improve our current account balance through doing that. I'm not sure if uh, Mr. Trump really understands what the mechanics of that are, but anyway, um, right now I would uh, not suggest making any large purchases. It seems like we're at the latter stages of both the economic and market cycles, so we can expect that some of the, well, the majority of the good times are behind us right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, are, if on balance of probabilities, it's far more likely that we see a recession in the next two years in North America, so United States and Canada, than we would see continued economic growth or, or like unabated continued economic growth in that in that same ter- time horizon. So. If I was looking, if I'm a consumer right now, I would try and de-risk my lifestyle, try and see where I could uh, save money, uh, where I could de-risk my uh, portfolio if I have lots of gains that I'm sitting on. Uh, Those are the type of decisions that I want to make. And well, maybe buying a $200 pair of shoes is not such a bad, bad idea right now. Uh, buying a half or getting a seven hundred thousand dollar mortgage for a condo in in Vancouver might not be a great idea right now. Fair enough, Sean. As always, thanks so much for joining us on the program with your insight. You're welcome. That's Sean Coakley, market analyst here in Vancouver at Cambridge Global Payments. Coming up next, we're going to have a look at the role developers play in creating Vancouver green spaces. Vancouver's Greenest City Action Plan relies fairly heavily on green space. By 2020, the city wants every resident to be within a five-minute walk of a green space park or greenway here in the city. Developers play a critical role in this, but creating green spaces can come with some challenges. Nathan Gervich is the development coordinator at Cressy Development Group. He joins us now with more insight. Nathan, good to have you on the show. Thank you. Good to be here. In a city like Vancouver, we obviously have a quite a significant green mandate, but we also know that land and space comes at a premium. What are some of the challenges from a developer's perspective when it comes to figuring out how to fit in green spaces? Yeah, I mean, as part of development in general, green space is such an important part of the final product and the living for the residents. So, <clears throat> I mean, challenges include one of the main ones is creating a, uh, you know, a landscape plan that, that is long-term and viable for us, for a strata or, you know, property maintenance to keep and have it looking great and being healthy for, for the residents. Uh, in addition, you know, plan selection and choices can be very important to the long-term viability of these landscapes that we live with in our life. How, how are, uh, generally speaking, the green spaces, the newer ones, being financed, Nathan, is it through community amenity contributions? Is it, uh, is it, uh, uh, you know, a strata? Where, where, where's the money coming from? Well, in new developments, the the financing for the landscape portions of the project are 
they're they're done through the development process and funded by the developer as part of the project. So uh, you, you know, basically, after you've gotten your architect on board, the landscape architect is the second consultant that you that you engage, and their design is paramount as you move through the city process. And uh, you know, it forms a it forms a large part of of your sales and marketing program. Also, I mean, as the look and feel of a building and the spaces you live in, the outdoor spaces are equally as important. So this this all comes through the, the development process, and it, it is funded as part of the project by the developer. However, he's financing the project. Is, is there a relationship between the nature of the green space and the nature of the development? That is, it would, for particular uh, developments that would be targeting young families as opposed to, say, um, seniors or single people? You know, it's interesting you would like to say there is, and in some cases, there certainly, there, there probably has been some thought put into it, but I think in a lot of cases, there's not as much thought put into that as perhaps there could be. Um, it's, and one of the things that's coming up a lot these days is urban agriculture and the ability to grow food in these environments. And, you know, for, for you mentioned young families, ch- children, and having children engaged in some vegetable gardening in a strata-type development is pretty exciting and wonderful way to, you know, if you want to go as far as marketing a development, I mean, that's a great start. Uh, it's same with seniors, you know, getting people outside and excited about engaging in their landscapes is, is pretty great. But at the same time, you want to be cognizant of, of landscape choices. You know, in the case of seniors, you, there may be some decisions that are better than others as far as maintenance and just the amount of time required to keep a landscape looking good. Mm-hmm. How much room do developers and architects have to be creative when it comes to coming up with green spaces versus what are sort of the guidelines or restrictions around the kinds of spaces you can come up with? Well, as far as landscape design is concerned, it's, it's pretty much like the imagination, you know, let it run wild within the bounds of I mean, the biggest thing on most of these projects is, you know, there a lot of them are lot line to lot line with structured parking. So you have situations where you only have so much growing medium. You know, you can't, you don't have five, six plus feet of soil to grow big mature trees. And so you need to be somewhat thoughtful about the type of material you choose. And, you know, long-term maintenance of these projects requires in time, you, know, you have to replace membranes and, and do various things that can disrupt the landscape. So, that's a major part of the thinking that goes into it. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, child play areas and hardscaping type decisions are are very interesting in that you can really do whatever you want within the bounds of, of you know, the building codes and city policies. So uh, it, it's, it's how crazy you want to get more than anything else, really. Yeah. I mean, it's not crazy, but some of the greater innovations I've seen, obviously, in this city include rooftop trees and mm-hmm. rooftop gardens and rooftop play spaces, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How how risky and challenging and, frankly, expensive are those? Yeah, I wouldn't say they're overly risky. They're becoming pretty normal these days. And, and you know, the engineering and the, the this construction behind them are pretty well known. Um the problem with these, I mean, of course, you want a concrete structure to do these on. Wood frame, you can have problems, mm-hmm. as you could imagine, with a whole bunch of green space and weight. But uh, for these roof areas, they're a great way to leverage 
unused space, specifically when you have developments that don't have a lot of area for, you know, a playground or, or even just, you know, areas to get people out from the landscape. So much of it is donated to circulation and moving people to and from your various points of access that you just, you lose the ability to have a dedicated garden type environment. And, you know, a lot of cases when you, you see these blank roofs, it's almost like a myth. So I really encourage people to uh, use that roof space as much as possible. And the city has come on board a lot in the last little while on uh, recognizing this and, and sort of removing some barriers to actually building these spaces through the development process. Yeah. Although and I, I again, think just, there, there was that one celebrated case, I think it was last summer, where the, the tree died on the roof and it became yeah. massively expensive to replace. <laughs> yeah. And it had something to do with the city's watering policy. So they, do they, in a way, the city has to play ball on this as well, too. They certainly do. And I, I assume you're referring to the one on English Bay. And, yeah. and that's kind of a unique case because that is, a, I mean, anyone who knows the location, it is a large tree. That, I mean, that's above and beyond what you would expect as a typical yeah. rooftop planting and, and I mean the soil volume that's necessary for a tree of that size is just like an engineering expense and feet in its own right yeah mm-hmm. yeah that was a that was a, a I mean it, it sounds like most of the people in that building can afford it but there was a fairly big bill <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I do recall the figure at being quite large yeah. Mm-hmm. On this topic, though, Nathan, is there like you'd see in a development with added amenities, the, the higher up you go with more quality, luxury developments, do you see that reflected in green spaces? Is there a push to have, you know, maybe more exotic plants, for example, or different types of designs in green spaces? Yeah, I think we're seeing some pretty neat innovations these days with, with some landscape design. Um I don't know if there's, I mean, I'm sure there's some correlation between, you know, perceived luxury of a project and landscape and obviously the money that would be spent and the hours that would design it. But generally, I think that it's something that can be a bit disconnected from, you know, the, the end value of a, of a residential product simply because, you know, generally speaking, landscape is, is besides a, a really out there hardscaping plan with a whole bunch of concrete planter walls and all this, you know, the, the straight pro- plant product itself is, you know, it's, it's not like going from a Caesar stone to an Italian marble. It's, you know, the, the plant prices don't really vary that much. Mm. I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago in BIB about uh, our parks and, and how I find them to be frankly more dormant than they need to be. And some of that I have a perception is that there isn't the clearest possible relationship between development and the improvement of our park system uh, flat out. That uh, and, and I wonder whether we're reaching the point where we have to start rethinking that relationship and uh, you know, corresponding the development community with the park system in order to get the kinds of cultural and athletic and other facility improvements there. Yeah, interesting thought. Interesting thought. Um, the one thing that I, I was thinking of, even when I was driving in today, is, is, is too when you have a development that's near a park or near a green space, is is the thought of integrating it, them together. You know, having one sort of bleed into another, yeah. as opposed to having everything so separated. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, I, I was rereading the Jane Jacobs book, uh, The Death and Life of American Cities around Christmas. And, and that was the one chapter that stuck with me, which is that she talks about the necessity to have buildings right surrounding parks that in a way mm-hmm. it, it enlivens them as opposed to putting some distance, you know, a, a, a large thoroughfare between a house and a park, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of stills them a bit. Um, Completely. But it, it's a dangerous political conversation, as you would imagine, the idea of having some discussion about perhaps having even development right in where we now have park space. Yes, I think you would definitely have challenging various groups on that notion. Mm-hmm. That sort of brings us back to what we opened with the city's plan by 2020 to, to have every resident within a five minute walk of some sort of park or green space. Nathan, do you think we're on track? Is that feasible for a city like Vancouver? Well, it's a, it's a challenge. There's no question about that. Uh, you know, it's going to require a lot of probably small park node type areas in order to meet that. I think generally the city is doing a pretty good job with their with their green space and their you know their parks departments. Whether or not that's a true reality for a five minute walk, I don't know. I'm not convinced necessarily, but certainly for the development process, there is there is a lot of time and effort spent on the quality of the landscaping and the discussion surrounding it. Yeah, I met one of our country's race walkers the other day, so maybe it's maybe it's race walk, <laughs> a five minute race walk. Um, the, the other element of this that we perhaps look over at times is uh, is the role that pets play in this city. I mean, we we have a lot of downtown pets, and we have a lot well, a lot of pet ownership proportionately in in this community. It, again, do we think through the consequences of pet ownership when we're developing green space automatically? You know, I don't think we do. I I think the one time maybe you do is when you're, it's part of your marketing or maybe you're marketing a rental project and it's a pet friendly project. It's funny because when you actually get into that thought process, you realize to really do it properly, there are concessions that need to be made. Um, when you have a pet friendly rental building where you can expect a lot of dog owners, there's obvious challenges of that landscape such as in dog runs and, and animals sort of burrowing around in your landscape that truly you do need to consider. And I think generally speaking, it is not necessarily thought about as the development proceeds. Yeah. Hmm, fair enough. Well, an interesting conversation, Nathan. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, guys. Thank you. That's Nathan Gervich, Development Coordinator at Cressy Development Group. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. Subscribe and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course at BIV.com where you can find more of our business news every day. Thanks a lot for listening. 